Muslims are no stranger to racism and inequality from the outside world, but there's no denying it exists within our own communities as well. You're listening to Unsweet and Unfiltered, the podcast, episode 14 of season 2. In today's episode, we speak to Aisha Jihad about her experiences with racism growing up as a black Muslim in a Muslim country, how she learned to navigate and embrace her identity, and what we can do to help end the cycle of anti-blackness in today's society. Hey, it's Danielle and Zaina, and welcome to Unsweetened and Unfiltered, the podcast where we elevate the voices of women by sharing their stories of struggle while also highlighting their success. We wanted to create a space for women to feel like they're not alone in whatever hardship they may be facing. Some conversations may be lighthearted, while others may touch upon taboo topics ranging from mental health to women's bodies and spiritual struggles, and we don't shy away from any of it. But our overall mission is to make every woman realize that she is not alone. We are all in this together, I promise. Our sole purpose is to build relationships, not barriers, between you and the woman who may need you. We're here to provide inspiration and to build courage. Tune in every Wednesday where we'll feature an insightful guest who will help us reach these goals. We laugh, we ugly cry, and we'll probably laugh some more. So plug in your headphones, grab your favorite cup of coffee or shea, and get ready to become a part of this unbreakable sisterhood. You are tuning into season two of Unsweetened and Unfiltered. You guys, we're only two weeks in. And Zena already has had her first Ramadan injury. Do you care to explain? You know, I was trying to cook, and this is why I try to cook. cook. Keyword: try. <laughs> I was uh, heating up a uh, a skillet of oil, and I forgot it on the stove, and it decided to like literally just explode all over my hand. So, you know, this is why I don't cook often. <laughs> Wait, so you're blaming the oil? I'm blaming the oil. Let me explain this, you guys. She put oil on top of a stove with high heat and then she decides I just forgot about she it. She forgets about it. So what happens after a you know certain amount of time that oil is gonna be sizzling and boiling and everything in between. Yeah and so when I went to go throw some food on the, the skillet or whatever. <laughs> what are you decided, cooking, Kim? <laughs> I was like heating up a piece of steak for my husband. It was something so basic. It wasn't like I was doing some like humongous azai uh-huh. or whatever. But so when the oil like flew out of the pot, thank God I put my hand up to cover my face because like you can't ruin the moneymaker. Oh, and then, yeah. so like literally my entire forearm is just like splats of oil. Like it's just the worst. I'd honestly... Uh, the worst pain in the world, I think, is getting burned. You guys, I told Zaina, like, I cry when, you know, when you're, like, curling iron or straightener's yeah. hot and you grab it from, like, the, the wrong end and it burns your finger and then the whole day it's burning. Imagine Zaina's entire forearm. It's so bad. And, you know, like, I... You talk to so many different people about like what the right thing to do is during a burn and then you Google it and it's, like, completely wrong. So I just put, like, some, like, ointment on it and, like, fell asleep from how much pain I was in. And it's, like... You know, did your mom give you all these like home remedies? And yeah, stuff? she said put mustard on it. What? The- okay, so my mom, I know she's listening, <laughs> will always tell you when you burn your hand to put mustard on it. So Why? like when I got married and I like you know whatever and I burned my hand the first time my husband came home and he found mustard all over my hand. He's like, what the hell are you doing? It really does help though. How? Like what does it do? I have like, no just idea. Tame the pain. It just like makes it not hurt anymore. Oh. But I mean, 
Yeah. I don't think like you can treat a second degree burn catch with ketchup work or we anti ketchup. Like what is it? I have this no is idea. So funny. But like yeah, like you were saying put oh my mother in law thinks to put like arabi coffee on it. That's like, what my yeah. mom would say. So like yeah. everyone has these different home remedies. I just went with what the doctor said. But you had your first virtual doctor's appointment, which yeah. is so interesting. It is interesting. yes, I wanna talk about that because telehealth is something that is like going to change the way I think we live forever because it was so convenient to like go to the doctors but like not have to leave my house especially nowadays and and honestly they're very attentive with everything they have you either do it like through video calls or like you'll send them pictures of the injury and honestly it was so convenient and I hope that we don't lose telehealth once we go back to normal this just hit me my dad had a telehealth appointment I don't know why I literally just hit me because we talked about this before starting to record and everything but yeah it was a FaceTime call she was just looking at my dad and all that stuff and just assessing him and everything that's that's so true that's pretty cool it is is. it really is going to change the way that we yeah. yeah very convenient and today you guys we have a very special guest Aisha Jihad who we really want to bring her on to talk about pretty serious um, conversations in regards to you know just her identity as a black Muslim woman in today's society and then you know we all deal with Islamophobia externally outside of our community but you know Aisha Jihad is somebody who feels like she also deals with this within our own community this is a conversation I feel like it will continue to happen until we find a solution until we allow everybody to feel like they are part of of our community part of our own regardless of what your skin color is or where you come from or anything in between you know it's really disappointing because as an ummah we're supposed to be one and when you see those divides within our own society i mean it really is disheartening and i think the way that aisha explained what she went through and the things that we can do to help put an end to this was beautifully said and i think we can all take something positive away from this yeah and shall you guys enjoy this episode are you ready to dive in zaina let's do it Thank you so much, Aisha, for joining us. And Ramadan Mubarak to you. I would love for you to introduce yourself so then we can really get into this episode and the important topics that are at hand that we really want to discuss with you. Thank you guys for having me. Ramadan Mubarak to you as well. Yeah, so I'm really excited to be on here and to like talk to you guys about this topic that I think is um, pretty important to me. But also, like, thank you for providing the space for this topic to be discussed. So my name is Aisha. I am... I'm a third-year law student in Atlanta. I uh, never really know how to answer the question of like where I'm from or like, because it's it's such a long story. I am, my dad is from Florida. My mom is from Sierra Leone and I was raised in Kuwait, Saudi, and then moved back to the States after. And like I said, a third-year law student and I live in Atlanta now. So now I consider Augusta home, I guess. That's nice. Never been there. My dad has been, and he's been <laughs> Atlanta. Want, yeah, he That's actually nice. almost wanted to move us to Atlanta. This was years ago. My mom's like, there's no way. All of our family's in Chicago. We can't move away. But it would have been nice to just, like, venture out. I feel like life is too short to be just living in one city your entire life. You're right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you moved around a lot as a kid. And I want to talk about just your parents and what your upbringing was like. Yeah. So I was, my dad was in the military in, here in the U.S. and he retired when I was two. And after he retired, we moved to Kuwait and I was there until I was about six. And then I moved back to Florida for like six months and then back to the Middle East. And I was in Saudi until I graduated high school. So I was in Saudi pretty much from when I was like six and a half ish until 17 with like a year in between where I was in Georgia, but 
other than that 10 years in Saudi. And there's always that question like, oh, Aisha, you're Muslim. You must be a convert. But if you explained your family's history, like your parents' history, I think people would really truly understand your background, your faith and everything like that. Can we talk about like your dad, your mom, how they met, their religious background at, at the moment that you met and everything like that? Yeah. So my dad converted in his, I believe, like late 20s. And he was in the military at that time. My mom was born and raised Muslim. Um, She was in Sierra Leone. They met in Sierra Leone, kind of set up by someone. It's a really funny story. But they anyway, they met in Sierra Leone. And then they moved to Germany and then the States. And that's when I was born. Um, But yeah, I think it's my dad was Muslim for about at least five years before my parents met. They got married and started having kids and he retired. They kind of wanted a different, just like place to raise their kids. So for like job reasons, but also like my dad really wanted to raise his kids in a Muslim country. That's kind of like why we moved to Kuwait and then to Saudi. People always like assume that either I'm a convert or that my dad converted for my mom. Those are like the two very big assumptions that I get all the time. But no, my siblings and I were um, born Muslim, alhamdulillah, and we were raised Muslim. And, but yeah, they were set on raising their kids overseas and in a Muslim country. Which happens often. I see a lot of people doing that. Like in our case, a lot of people move their families back to Palestine when their kids are about to enter high school or maybe even just middle school. Yeah, my family did it. We lived in Palestine for two years just to experience life in an Arab Muslim country. I experienced it every summer. So (laughs) we didn't get to go throughout the year, but it was every summer we kind of went. And it's nice. And I think that it's a good idea as well if you want your kids to be, you know, to have some roots somewhere to be attached to their religion, to their faith. And I think it's beautiful when you are Muslim and you are in a Muslim country to really practice your faith and hear the Adhan. But for you, it wasn't always rainbows and just everything's perfect, um, especially given the fact that you are a black family in a Muslim country. There was a lot of racism that you had to face at some points in your life, and especially in your impressionable years. Do you want to talk about the experiences that you have faced? Yeah. So first, I I think I obviously didn't really start reflecting on a lot of this until I got older. One basic example, I never really told people that I was half Sierra Leonean. I would just say I'm American. For me, I now realize that what I was doing was trying to separate myself from my blackness. But obviously back then I was just like, oh, I'm American. Like, of course, why would I say anything else? And also it's funny because now when people ask me where I'm from, like, I don't hide the fact that I'm half Sierra Leonean. But back then it was like I was trying to step away from that. And I think I also went through a phase. I I don't even know if it was a phase because it lasted very long where I was like, if I, I was like, I speak the language, if I can like convince people that I, you know, understand the culture, maybe people will accept me and respect me. And that lasted, I want to say like through high school. What happened when I started doing that is people would say like, oh, you're from Sudan. Because they were like, there's no way that you can be black and speak Arabic other than like being from Sudan. I remember I used to get like irritated where I'm like, no, I'm American. I just speak Arabic, but people just didn't understand that. I think I was in fourth grade. Um, There was a girl who was older than us. I think she was in like eighth or ninth grade. And I obviously like when people asked me where I was from, I said I was American. And she decided that I wasn't American and told everyone that I was lying and said that I was from Zimbabwe. Mind you, at this time, I don't think I even knew Zimbabwe was a country. Like I, I was maybe third or fourth grade. And I remember like saying, I was like traumatized. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm from Zimbabwe. How come no one told me? And obviously (laughs) like, I, it wasn't like, I, like I said, I didn't know Zimbabwe was a country. I was just like, what is, what is she was like? Oh no, she's lying to you guys. She's not American. And so I think that just like, obviously that 
impacted me in some way because I still remember the story. But just other like little things like, well, not little, but we were playing at a park once, my siblings and I, and I was young. I don't remember how old. And I was wearing a hijab and this girl was playing with us and she asked us where we were from. And we said that we were American. And she was like, oh, you can't be American. You don't have colored eyes. I don't remember if she said blue or green, but you don't have colored eyes. And then she went and told her mom that we said we were American. And her mom came up to us, like, mind you, this is like a grown lady. She came up to us and was like, I want to see your hair. And I was just looked at her. I was like confused because I thought she was kidding. And she was like, oh, if you don't have blonde hair, you can't be American. Wow. I remember like, obviously that again, another story that like, clearly I remember because it traumatized me in some way. But just those little things, I think that happened, those conversations or like questions people asked kind of made me distance myself from being black um, in a way that I didn't really understand and didn't really reflect on until I obviously got older, but also had different life experiences when I moved back to the States. Just in general, like the stereotypes that, you know, I heard about people that I didn't realize I internalized until I obviously, again, got older and was able to reflect on some of the things I did and said that sometimes I'm like, wow, I can't believe I ever said that. We are conditioned even sometimes with the way we are taught in school with our history books. It's this indirect racism that we are taught to like, you know, fear them in a sense where it's like they're always the bad guys in every story and every history book and everything. And every TV show and every every TV show specifically. Yes, definitely. And now you even just see that these kids are saying these things, not because they're forming their own thoughts. The scary part is that it's their parents forming these thoughts for them. It's these things that are happening behind closed doors that their parents are discussing and the kids are bringing them, bringing these um, hateful rhetorics with them to school. Absolutely. No one's born racist. That's just something you learn. It's, it's not, innate you know what I mean so when you're teaching your kids to love others you have to practice what you preach in a sense you do you do and but it's like how did it really make you feel Aisha because I know you were too young I think now it does make sense for you now to really look back on these things and to really truly reflect because now you're an adult and you can really look back and realize like that was not okay and yes it probably was traumatizing because here you are really like thinking about it now at this point in time in your life but to be able to really sit there amongst these kids who again they all do look different than you and not only that but they're also saying these things about you and making these assumptions about you and they're making can you prove your Americanness? So the interesting thing is, I don't think that I was, I mean, I would say that now reflecting on it, I'm like, I was having an identity crisis. But I didn't back then, I just thought that that was normal. I was, you know, I was kind of just like, whenever my dad spoke to me about racism, I was always kind of just like, okay, yeah, I understand it. But like, can we move on? Which now I like, can't believe I ever said, but you know, I also try to like be kind to myself and remind myself that I was a child. So not to be way too critical on the things I did and said, but I think that I didn't really understand that I was having an identity crisis. Like to me, I was just, I I never thought I was hating the concept of being black. I just thought that I had a different way of viewing than other people did. And so I didn't really like, I never consciously said, I hate being black or I hate black people. I like I never ever said that or said anything directly that showed that. But I think that in indirectly in some of the things I said and some of the ways I thought, I was really like internalizing that self-hate and kind of trying to separate myself from it in a way that clearly shows that what I was doing was really hating on my blackness. 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, you see it a lot in America, right? Where Arab teens try to act more American. And it's kind of mm -hmm. ironic how you're in this Arab country, you are American and you're trying to act more Arab. It's not that we hate our Arabness and we try to be more, you know, quote unquote, Americanized. We just want to blend in. We kind of want to just assimilate to our surroundings. We don't want to be that one person to stick out in a group of our classmates, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that was also a big part of it. Like, in my graduating class, I could count on my on one hand probably how many black people were in my class. And so for me, it was just a like I obviously my family are all black. But outside of that, most of the people I was around were not. And so like I remember my parents would always ask me when I was younger, like, oh, how come you don't have any black friends? But I think to me, it was always like it was I just wasn't around a lot of black people. Right. It wasn't like I went to school and there was like a bunch of people that I can like be friends with that happen to be black that just wasn't the case. And so, and that's kind of something that I think is super important that you learn about other people and you learn, you develop impressions about other people based on interactions with them. And if you don't have that direct interaction, then you learn about them through other people, which I think is dangerous, right? You start to hear whether it's TV shows, whether it's movies, whether it's just regular conversations, you start to internalize those messages that people are telling you about other people. And sometimes it can even be yourself, right? If my experience as being a black person was, or of other black people was just my direct family, then the other messages I hear about what a black person is like, or the stereotype about black people ends up being internalized from what other people are saying, watching, or the media that I'm consuming. And I think that's dangerous. And that's why I think it's very important for us just as humans to expand who is in our circle that way we're gaining experiences, not just from people that look like us, but from people that have different experiences. 100%, because I think that's also something we're going to cover in a bit. But it's true. It's not maybe 100% self-hating because we would go back to our families and we love our families and we love our traditions and we love our culture and we love our upbringing when we're in the comfort of our home. It was just when we were put in places outside of our homes, environments that you know are kind of still foreign to us, even sometimes a classroom that we felt like we had to be somebody else to blend in. I think it's a self defense mechanism that's what it would be yeah. i think it's because more self-defense than self-hate yeah 100 yeah. because you guys i went to a very diverse school there was a lot of muslims in my class but my problem is we weren't acting muslim i'm not saying we were doing haram things you guys but we were more so like i guess ashamed is not the right word because it's really hard to describe because we were really young so we were still kind of yeah. trying to figure our lives out but we let's just say we weren't out in the open saying we're muslim and we celebrate ramadan so i still felt alone even no matter how many muslim kids were in my class in this public school setting you know what i mean but it, it, it was it was hard i think it was a hard time in all of our lives but i think it's even more so much more difficult for you because your identity is very visible you know yeah, we can hide the absolutely. fact that we're muslim in palestine because we don't wear the hijab but for you it's people look at you and they're already running all these assumptions in their head about who you are and what your family's like and you know what you're going to do and I think that's a lot of pressure especially for a kid to be to be under at that point in your in time um Aisha what were the stereotypes that were fed to you about your race about black people just in that point in time because I know it's going to shift when you move back to the states and we're going to talk about that yeah so I mean I think it's just some of the basic like when you think of like movies and like the bad guy is always the black man and also just like the idea of like all black people are poor or like, you know, all black people are like our ghetto, you know, things like that. And I think the scary thing is that what ends up happening is for people like me who like didn't really have exposure to a lot of black people, but also didn't fit into that stereotype, you kind of develop a superiority complex 
where you're like, oh, I'm different than them. Like I'm different than a regular black person, which is really dangerous. It is. Um, and that I think is how you begin to hate who you are because you're like, oh, if I can do X, Y, and Z, then why can't other black people do X, Y, and Z? And I think that obviously as I got older and kind of understood more like that racism isn't really how you treat me, but it's more like a systemic thing, right? It's more so how like systems are disenfranchising people. Then you kind of start to understand that like, oh, wait, I'm not different because I worked hard and I made it. I just happened to, you know, be given a certain set of circumstances that have given me an opportunity that other people might not have gotten. And it's not because of, and I, that's when it goes back for me personally, it goes back to Allah, right? I'm like raised in Saudi. I feel so blessed that I was raised in a family that were able to provide for me that, you know, we didn't have to worry about where our next meal was going to come from. And I don't think that that's solely because my parents worked hard and made sure that happened. I think it's a combination of hard work. I think it's partly like Allah, you know, alhamdulillah, like giving us what we had, but I think it's important to recognize that so that you don't develop a superiority complex where you're like, oh, I'm different than all the other black people. Because at the end of the day, the same systems that oppress family in, I don't know, Chicago, oppresses families in Florida, oppresses families, that systematic racism doesn't just change because of, you know, what you've been given. Absolutely. Like, did you ever have a conversation with your parents? Because I never had a conversation with my parents about like my identity and how I can be more proud of who I am and where I come from. Did you did it ever get to the point where you're like, let me talk to my parents about this? My dad would really like he really, really tried to teach us about racism because that wasn't something or like just American history because that wasn't something we really learned in school overseas. Um, I think it's also important to mention like my parents have com- they're both black, but they have completely different experiences. Like my mom was born and raised in Sierra Leone. She didn't leave until she got married. So she was like late 20s. My dad, on the other hand, was like born in North Carolina, raised in Georgia and in Florida and like in the South through like desegregation. So he has a completely different experience of what blackness means or like, you know, his, his view on blackness than my mom does. And so for, and when we're talking about like American history and we're talking about racism and we're talking about slavery, obviously those are stories that I think my dad had impacted him more in his daily life. Because like I said, when he was, I want to say my dad was in ninth grade when schools desegregated, which means all prior to that, he was in an all black school. And so I always bring that story up. I always bring that point up because I think we have, as a society have like distanced ourselves so much like oh slavery happened so long ago like racism doesn't exist anymore but I'm like there are people that are living today that literally weren't went to all black schools because they couldn't go to schools that where white people went and so yeah their views of racism were very different my dad would try to explain to us you know like and I remember like certain times just being like why are we talking about this like it happened in the past and like we yes it, it was terrible but we should do things to try to better ourselves as people now And what I wasn't realizing was that the forms just changed, right? It's not that, oh, slavery happened, now we're all good. It's just that it's different forms of racism that that still exist within the Muslim community, within our broader community, and just in society in general. And so I remember, like, so many of the conversations I had with my dad were him trying to, like, you know, explain his experience and his story. And I would always be like, yeah, I hear you, but, like what are we going to do? Like, we can't just keep complaining about it. And now I understand that, like, the only way you can learn and like move from, not move from, only way you can learn and actually incorporate stories of the past into who you are today and how you view things is by actually learning and studying those stories, right? It's not going to 
just you're not going to go to sleep and wake up and all of a sudden you understand all of history and now you're like incorporating these lessons into your life. And so I think that back then we, like my dad and I now can literally talk for like hours. Like every time I come home, my dad and I will just have like hour long conversations just talking about like racism or like just so many different like topics that before when we talked about, I was like, oh, why do we have to talk about this? And so I think part of it's like, I was a child, <laughs> talk about anything that was important, but also just didn't really understand like the impact that it had on his life and also how it still impacts his life. I feel like every solution comes with a starting point. And I think that's what your dad was trying to implement and try to show you, even though yeah, that is true, his form of racism or his experience of being a black person definitely differs from your mom's or even actually from yours too, because where your that's starting true, point yeah. was, yeah, you were more just questioned on your identity, but your dad actually went through the stages of having to just go to an all black school. And that's just something that it's like it is mind-boggling because you you know everybody tries to make you believe that this happened forever ago hundreds oh, of years ago that. yeah we're past that and i understand your point of view Aisha. it's like okay what can we do now we're past that but it's like i feel like the major chunk of it is talking about it is actually talking yeah. about it and understanding what somebody went through and how can we dismantle this because you are right we are in a different era now but there's still racism it still exists but it exists in different types of tunnels and different viewpoints and perspectives i mean we still see black people being killed at the hands of cops you know what i mean like that's that's yeah, horrible right there right? and then there's our justice system which i feel like does an injustice to black people or any minority out there for that matter but i want to I want to, for this episode, specifically focus on black people. And I think we are going to also talk about that about a little bit later about comparing struggles and how it kind of, what's the right, I can't find the right word, but it's like a disadvantage when you're talking about a black person's struggles and then you're trying to also tell them, well, I understand where you're coming from because as a Palestinian, I face the same thing. So we're going to talk about that yeah. and how that sits with you, Aisha. But when it comes to your dad, how did he feel like being a convert He's very well-versed, mashallah, in the Qur'an, in, in the teachings, in our faith, and everything like that. But he still felt like he was still an outsider within our own Muslim community. I think that's something that we yeah. still see to this day, even though people do want to deny it. And it's really hard. It's hard to talk about these things about your own community. That's the only way we can find the solution. Yeah, I think that there's always the assumption that, well, two things. If you're a convert, you don't know much about Islam. Like, we have to constantly teach you. And you see that a lot. Whether the person is black or not, you see that a lot where people kind of try to like, oh, no, you're doing this wrong. Like, let me help you. And a lot of times I don't think people mean ill, but I think that intentions are important, but also the harm done is also important, right? Like, even if you don't intend to be offensive, if you're offensive, you're offensive. You know, my dad's had his fair share of stories of like having a conversation with someone and they're like, oh, no, no, let me tell you, let me teach you. When I first heard like a lot of those stories, I kind of you know, was like, maybe it's, they're doing that because he's a convert. But then I've heard stories from other friends of mine that are black. They're not converts where, you know, they'll have a conversation with someone and it's kind of this whole like, oh no, you don't know enough. Like, let me teach you. I, I noticed that a lot in Saudi. And I think that there's this, there's this idea that because, Arab, and my dad had this conversation with someone who basically told him like, oh, you're not Arab. You don't speak the language. So like, I have to, I have to teach you. And it's, Islam doesn't belong to anyone, right? It doesn't belong to any group of people. And that's one of the beauties of Islam, you know, like no matter what your religion is, no matter what your background is, like Islam is a religion that is accepting of all people. And so when people are saying things like, oh, you're not Arab, so I have to tell you because I know better, what they're doing is like, there's no root, there's no basis in Islam for that whatsoever. 
so it's like they're taking it back to the language. Like if because the Quran is written in Arabic, you must not fully understand or comprehend the Quran. I speak Arabic and I can't sit here and say, Oh, I'm Can I know more than your yeah. dad. Yeah, just because I speak Arabic or I grew up in a household that speaks Arabic. So I think that's very ignorant. Yeah, and I think the other thing is like even like you said, like people who can speak Arabic, like speaking Arabic and Fusha Arabic are very different. And so I was in an American school, but like we did Arabic classes. So like we did Fusha in school. But still, like, I can have a full-blown conversation in, like, conversational Arabic. But when it comes to Fusha, like, obviously, it's it's different, you know? Like, I, there's a lot of things that I can pick up, I can understand. But, like, when it gets technical, it's, honestly, it's, it's like I'm reading two different languages. And I think that when people say things like, oh, Arabic is my language, I know, I can explain to you everything about Islam, I'm like... You can speak conversation in Arabic, but like, let's talk about Fusha Arabic. Then like, we can have a real conversation about this. But yeah. It's almost like a different language when my mom reads yeah. the Quran, but it's it's Arabic, but it is, it's different. It's different than our conversational everyday language that we speak. Because at one point I knew how to read and write Arabic, and but I still didn't read the Quran fully, like directly like that. I still read the translation version because yeah, it was still too hard for me. To yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking right now as a kid who's, who's seeing her dad facing this racism, for you, that's probably not easy as well because you're learning that like, okay, as a kid, I'm facing racism, but then as I get older, even when I'm my, when I'm my dad's age, I'm still going to be facing that same kind of racism. So for you, in yeah. your head, was that something that you were kind of battling as a child? I think that I kind of went through a phase where I was like, dad just finds racism everywhere because he just like... I don't know. I, I kind of was just like, I, I would tell him that all the time. I'm like, dad, not everything is racist. Like you don't have to make everything about racism. And so I was kind of like differentiating myself from him where I was like, oh, he just is having these experiences because he just likes to find racism everywhere, which is 100% not true. Completely, you know, wrong on my part to think that. No, but I think I understand why you would think that as a kid. I get it. But isn't it yeah. interesting, Aisha, in your own way, maybe when you're a kid, you didn't understand it, like how even us, like it's kind of we're still facing racism, but not to the extent our parents are talking about it. But when you have to overcompensate for your identity, I think we've all faced it where we had to prove I'm just as good as you. I'm just as American as you and this and that. Like, did you ever feel like you had to overcompensate for who you were, your color, your family and all that stuff in the Saudi school in schools when you were in Saudi or no? A little bit. Um, I don't think it was conscious, though. I do think like the whole like, you know, just like basic like learning Arabic, right? Like, for me, it was like, okay, what can I do outside of what people can see that will make people respect me? And so it was like learning Arabic, listening to Arabic music, you know, things like that, where I was trying, I was like, what can I do that has nothing to do with what people see that will make people accept me. I, I definitely think that I did do certain things outside, of, you know, to try to make people accept me, but it wasn't definitely wasn't conscious. I was just doing those things unconsciously. And now when I sit back, obviously, and think about it, it's really what I was doing. I was trying to make sure that people like I was trying to make myself as similar to other people so that they can accept me. And I don't necessarily think that's specifically a black issue. I think that generally as humans, we try to be as similar as the people around us just so that we can you know, make sure that we're accepted and respected as humans. Do you feel like there was a shift in how you were treated being in the States versus how you were living overseas? I think I had really high expectations and then I was very disappointed. Um, I think all of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think when I moved back, I was like, oh, finally, I don't have to explain to people that I'm American, you know? So when I first moved back, people were like, oh, she's a Saudi girl. And I was like, I'm not Saudi. So there, that was, there was that issue. And not to say anything about like, I, I always say this, like, I am very, very blessed and very grateful for my experiences overseas. I think that it, 
I don't think I would have had the same experiences. I don't think I would have had the same opportunities that I had living overseas and like taking aside, you know, people always want to ask me like, what do you think about the Saudi government? Like politics aside, I was very blessed and very fortunate for the experiences that I had. But when I came back to the seas, I was like, I just want people to accept me for who I am. And I don't, oh, you're this and you're that when they're tying me to identities that I'm not. And so for me, when I, when I first moved back to the States, I think the hardest part was going to the mesh kind of like not knowing anyone, but also feeling like people were grouped by their backgrounds, right? So there was like the Egyptian group, there's like the Palestinian group, the Syrians, the Daisies. And so for me, when I came to the States, I was kind of like, all right, like what group do I fit in? It took knowing other things about us outside of our appearance to actually accept us, which is kind of disheartening, especially like from the Muslim community. Like I remember my brother, he like, alhamdulillah, like mashallah, he like reads like really, he has really good tilaw and tajweed when he reads Quran. And so he actually led tarawih, I want to say like three years ago. And this lady who walked, mind you, walked by me and said nothing to me for like four years. She sees me and she comes up to me. Like she said nothing to me in three years. She comes up to me and she's like, is that your brother? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, who's your mom? And I was like, what? And so it was really, I like didn't know how to take it at first, but it ended up getting to the point where like the days my brother led tarawih, once like Salah was over, I would get my stuff and leave. I was like, I I know what's going to happen. You know, normally like I like hang around with my friend, like talk to my friends after, but like the days he left, like, all right, I already know what's going to happen after today. I'm gone. I don't want to have any conversation with anyone. But that's, I think that for me and I think my family once people started to know other things about us, like, oh, they are educated or like, oh, they lived in Saudi. Oh, they speak Arabic. And at first I remember thinking like, oh, maybe it's because like they're more comfortable speaking like Arabic, right? Because that's kind of what I hear from a lot of people. They're like, oh, people just group because they're more comfortable speaking like in their language. But I know that's not the case because even once these people found that I spoke Arabic, they still spoke to me in English, right? Like they didn't speak to me in Arabic. So for me, I was like, it's not an issue of like, oh, now they know that I speak Arabic, so now they're more comfortable speaking to me in Arabic. Like, my mom doesn't speak Arabic. Once they found out she lived in Saudi and, like, oh, they are a good family, their kids are educated, and all of a sudden, like, people spoke to her more. She doesn't speak Arabic, so it had nothing to do with language whatsoever. How does that really make you feel, Aisha? Now you're an adult, you kind of realize, like, what's going on. You're not naive to this. At the beginning, I kind of just operating on the assumption that like, oh, people just don't understand black issues. They don't understand how the things they're saying and doing are problematic. And I was kind of like making excuses for people. And then after I started making, after I started being friends with people that showed me what a true ally is, that's when I started to become more critical of the ways that people were treating me. So once I saw how like you can be a non-black ally to the black community, once I realized what that looked like, I started to be more critical and have higher expectations of people. And so, you know, when people say things that are really racist, um, I think I I became better able to have a conversation with them. Like, oh, that's interesting that you said that. Like, why do you think that way? And kind of get people to see the problems in their views without directly telling them like, hey, that was racist. Because I think that once you call people racist, they automatically shut down. And I think, I mean, honestly, I don't think that people are racist just because they say racist things. I think that all of us have issues about when it comes to other communities, all of us have our own biases. And I don't think that that necessarily makes us a racist person. But I do think that if somebody's telling you like, hey, what you said is kind of problematic, it's racist. I think you should be able to 
learn from that. And what people do is they automatically shut off and go into defense where they're like, oh, no, I didn't mean that. But I don't think that it matters what you meant if the harm is still there, right? Like, you might not have intended to be racist or to say something racist, but if it's racist, it's racist. For me, with um, just moving back and, you know, like hearing things that people said or just like how like our family was to like go above and beyond. Like I always say that if you're black in a Muslim community, in a Muslim community that is not predominantly black, then I feel like you have to do something extra in order for you to be respected. Like being black is not enough. Like people don't just respect you as a human being or because you're Muslim. Like not, no, you have to be like black plus educated plus middle class. Plus there's just all these things that you have to do in order for people to respect you. And I think that's sad. I don't think that people should have to do extra things to respect them as human beings. It's truly sad because it's such a huge disconnect from what our faith teaches us. Exactly. I think that's the Absolutely. I think that's the really sad part because our faith teaches that everybody's equal. I mean, we see when we go to the head, you know, no matter what how much money you make or who you are, or what your name is, or what part of the world you are, like we're still all just like Allah's creations. So it's like why does this disconnect and this racist rhetoric happen within our own masjids, like in the house of Allah of all places? I think that's the hard part. But it's also difficult because like all of our majority of our parents immigrated from different countries and when they immigrated they created their own sense of safety net their own community in america so i feel like that's why there's these little cliques i guess you would say like the daisy community then you have the arab community egyptian community and whatnot because everybody's kind of navigating to what they know but when it comes to our generation now our next generation what can we do to kind of shift things around to change things around you know what i mean obviously we all grew up in certain parts of our neighbor like certain parts of our cities and whatnot and we're always going to probably stick to that masjid but how can we shift things around where we are opening our messages to everybody else to make it comfortable for other people to show up like i'm opening the floor to both you and zaina what do you guys think we should do in this sense how can we offer more of just like a safe a safe place for everybody to kind of attend a, a masjid prayer without feeling like they're left out or they're outsiders well i want to comment on something that you just said most of our parents and grandparents did immigrate and they were they were the lonely ones they were the one the outsiders so having those experiencing and having felt that why aren't they more accepting of people who are outsiders because they've been through it they know what it feels like to be on the outside it's hard yeah Yeah. that's so true that's that's a great point too I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to answer on, on behalf of somebody. That's why I was like thinking now, like it's up to us. Like, what can we do? But like, that's a great point, Zana. It's like, we should have all been there for one another. We should have all empathized with one another, regardless of who you are, what skin color you have or anything like that. Because we should, regardless, being yeah. Muslim in America is tough. It so is. If we, I think if we were to look past what part of the world we're from or what color our skin is, it would be a lot easier to navigate life as a Muslim in America. Sometimes a salam goes a long way. Just like a hi, yeah. how are you? Yeah. Welcome, what's your name? Something like that. Just even just little normal conversations kind of go a long way, don't you think? Just even as a starting yeah. point. I'm not saying that's going to solve everything, but I think sometimes we overthink things and I think we avoid certain situations because we don't know how to approach them. But all it is sometimes is just saying salamu alaikum. As something as simple as that how can we shift things around within our own masjids so that way when we see things implemented in our masjid you're going to start seeing things happening outside of our masjid and in our communities and it's going to pour into our communities and we're going to start being more accepting of one another yeah so i think that first what you mentioned earlier about like parents moving immigrating to the u.s and kind of creating communities i think that what's important and zana kind of touched on this 
if you understand what it feels like to be an outsider, then why would you want to do that to somebody else? And I think that goes for Muslims in general in America, like non-Black Muslims. You understand, like, after 9-11, you know how Muslims are treated in this country. And I feel like, if anything, that should have given you an insight into how Black people have been treated throughout history. So I feel like that event alone should have helped people understand, like, hey, we need to be allies to the Muslim community. Another important thing is I think that it's important to mention that immigrant Muslims that came to America have benefited from the work that African-American Muslims have done in this country from ages ago. And so I think that coming here and, you know, being able to establish a masjid, being able to go to that masjid peacefully, being able to practice your faith, all of those things are possible to immigrants, Muslims, because of the work of Black people, because of the work of Black Muslims. I think that one big thing that I always say is, like, people need to have conversations with their parents, right? Like, People need to be able to have critical conversations with their parents. Like, hey, you know, you said this thing. I don't like this is why that's a problem. Because I think sometimes like with the older generation, they don't understand. I mean, there are things obviously that are clearly problematic, but I think that there are a lot of things that they don't understand that it's harmful. And so, for example, when someone black talks about their experience in the masjid and then, you know, there's an older black, an older non-black person that says, oh, no, we're all equal. Like, you know, Allah created us all equally. Yes, Allah did, but that doesn't mean that people are actually in that treatment with and how they treat other people, right? Like ideally in an ideal world, we're all equal. There's no like we're only different so that we may like identify each other, not so that we may treat each other differently. In an ideal world, that's how we would operate. But that's not what happens. And by saying to black people constantly, like, we're all equal, like, no, we don't see color. Like, I think that the statement we don't see color is BS. It's a cop out. It is. It is. It's and also what it does is undermines the experience of black people, which I think I think is very harmful. If you don't have black people that you know, or that you hear from, then what ends up happening is you start to internalize ideas of what black people are like through media, through TV shows, through what you hear from other people. And so that's why I think it's really important that even if you are you know, like I immigrated from X country and I want to stick to my people. I still think that it's important. It doesn't hurt you to talk to people that don't look like you. It really doesn't. If anything, it makes you a better person because you're able to hear their experiences. And and when I mean hear their experiences, I mean like really listen, right? Not just like passively listen to people's experiences. I think that you have to consciously listen to what people are saying and not undermine their experiences and their stories. If someone says like, this happened to me and I felt this way, then I think that you accept that for what it is and you don't try to minimize their experience or their stories. Sometimes people are not directly racist or, or so they assume that they're not racist, but it's your actions yeah. that kind of almost speak louder than your words. Because even your, a look yeah. can be racist. It could, or just like, or just the way your family Aisha was treated in the masjid. Was anybody saying, get out of this masjid, you're not welcome? No, but there were different ways that they kind of did make you feel unwelcome. There were different ways Absolutely. that they made you feel uncomfortable. So I think that is right. We should have like an open door policy to talk to our parents about these things because I think, you know, you're not going to sit down your parents and teach them a to z but if you do hear them say something that makes you feel uncomfortable and you know that that's not right and you know if they said this outside of their homes that it would be really problematic then that's when you really should have a conversation with your parents or your elders or your aunts or your uncles i think we need to stop certain things that are said right in its tracks and not just wait for our parents to say these things to somebody you know outside of their home and then that's when it can be really hurtful and harmful now i'm not saying that it's not harmful when they're saying inside their homes but imagine them saying these things to somebody to their face like that would make them feel uncomfortable there shouldn't be no generational disconnect when it comes to these type of conversations yeah and our parents are and our grandparents are still the ones 
managing the mosques and they're the sheikhs and they're, you know, so we do have to teach or not, I don't want to say teach because kind of point out why what they're saying or what they're doing is incorrect and talk to your sheikhs. If you feel like there's a disconnect in your mosque and like, hey, like kind of encourage the the mosque to have an open conversation about that because I want to point out it's, it belongs to Allah and it should be an open door to anyone who wants to come and worship. I think why I said it's a cop out because I think it takes away from us challenging ourselves. Like we talked about it. I should like if you're going to say there's no racism in our community, you're basically going to take away the point of where we can challenge ourselves to find the solution to, you know, overcome this obstacle for our black counterparts. You know, that's not right. Yeah, it's ego. I think that's what it, you know, that's a huge part of it. Like people have a perception of who they are. And when that's challenged, they kind of go into like self-defense and they don't want to, they don't want people to call out problematic things that they're doing and saying. I think that at the end of the day, you should be more, you should be more concerned with causing harm to people than being called racist. And like Sema actually brought, brought this point up to me where she, because we were talking about this and, and she was like, people are more afraid of being called racist than actually doing something racist, which I think is insane, right? Like you should be more afraid of doing harm than someone calling you racist. And I think that, like I said, a lot of times I don't think that people intentionally do it, but I don't think that the harm is, I don't think it's less of a harm because they didn't intend. And like, for example, I brought this up earlier when I was talking to Dunya where like my mom went to register my little brother for um, an on class. And after she like completed the application, like the guy handed her a form and was like, oh, this is for financial assistance if you need it. I don't think he sat there and thought like, oh, what I'm doing right now is racist, but that's racist. I don't think that there's anything wrong with people. Like, I just want to make it clear. Like, I'm not saying it's wrong for people who need financial assistance, but I'm, what I'm saying is you shouldn't make assumptions about people just because of who they are. If you want to make that opportunity available for everyone, include it in the application form, just give everyone in the application form, have it there where people need it, they can use it or have it available on the desk when people are coming in to register. But for you to like, take the time out to like hand it and be like, this is for financial assistance, I think is problematic. That, that is problematic because I want to bring up a situation that happened at the wing because just for people who are listening and saying, well, it's not a big deal. I've gotten offered like financial advice forms before and or financial advice, financial, whatever you want, assistance. Forms, assistance before. But there was a situation where there was a black girl at the wing and she mentioned this and she made a great point. She's like, I am so sick of being treated like I'm the help at the wing. She's like, you guys assume that as a black person, I can't afford the membership fees. So the white ladies at the wing always assume that I work there and they'll ask me like, oh, hey, what time do you guys close? Oh, hey, what's this? And then, so then there was a white lady that's, this was a whole group setting. And the white lady is like, well, why is that offense, like offensive? She's like, I've, you know, gotten mistaken before, but there, it is offensive. This black girl is probably mistaken as somebody who works there probably day in and day out. You as a white lady probably got mistaken just once. once, You know what I mean? And that's not okay. There was a situation with my mom where, again, this could be somebody else like where they think like, oh, it's not a big deal because it only happened to you once. But my mom, we went to the doctor's office once and the the lady assumed that me and my mom don't speak English. I think she seen my mom first because my mom wears a hijab. She assumed she doesn't speak English. So as my mom was approaching the sign-in sheet, the lady's like, oh, look at her going over there when I'm over here. She said it straight to her face. So I went and I said, excuse me, like the look on this lady's face completely changed. Like within seconds, she was shocked that we knew English. So somebody else that might be like, oh, it's not a big deal. You know what I mean? She was probably having a bad day. But for me, this is something my mom experiences all the Every time. Every day, yeah. So for you, Aisha, your mom, as in just even just a black person experiencing the thought that you don't look like you're fit to even live in a certain city because you might not be rich enough to even live in this certain neighborhood. Because that's another story you shared with me too. Yeah, yeah. So there was a guy that was running for office and so 
Augusta is kind of split by, um, there's two counties. Um, well, no, there's, there's more than that that comes through Augusta, but the two big ones that people often speak of are Richmond and Columbia County. And there was a guy that was running for office in Columbia County and Columbia County is kind of considered the county that like more wealthy people live in. Um, and so this guy was going around and giving everyone his card because like I said, he was running for office. My mom was sitting at a table with um, other people and he walked by and gave every single person his card and skipped my mom. Deliberately. Basically making the, yeah, basically making the assumption that like, oh, you can't afford to live in Columbia County. So I'm not even going to bother. Yeah. But he like literally walked past every single person, gave them his card and skipped my mom. I think that was a little more deliberate and problematic. I mean, I think that there are obviously, like when I talked about the story with the guy giving the, asking her if she needed financial assistance, that was also problematic. But this one kind of irritated me a little more because I'm like, he made the conscious decision to exclude her publicly when he knew nothing about her, knew nothing about where she lived or anything. The other really hard thing is there's so many times that not just me, but I like speaking to other black Muslims that talk about their experience, like when things like that happen and they bring it up or they mention it even in their friend groups, it's kind of like, oh, maybe he didn't intend, like he didn't mean. And I think that that's another thing that people should stop doing. If someone's telling you like, hey, this happened and this is how I felt about it, just accept it for what it is. Um, giving your opinion as someone who didn't experience it is kind of useless. Like, I don't, I don't care what you think. I don't care if you felt like I'm the one who experienced it. I'm the one who went through it. And I don't think it's your place to tell me that that wasn't problematic. Yeah, and I think people who do say something, they're trying to kind of reassure you and kind of comfort you in a way, but it's really not doing that. It's kind of doing the opposite. You're kind of making me feel like I'm crazy. Like, oh, I'm making up these scenarios in my head and I'm reaching for things that aren't there. But like you said, Aisha, regardless if the intent was there or not, it's how it made you feel. And I think we discount people and their feelings and we try to make up excuses for others. And I think we've done that long before, you know, just in history and just in regardless, I feel like we're always giving excuses to these oppressors and just neglecting the stories and the voices of the oppressed. And it it was a conscious effort on his end that he made sure not to give her the card because he made that assumption. At least now your mom knows who to vote for. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't think that was ever an issue. Him. Yeah. <laughs> How about we talk about marriage? I think this is something that to this day, I'm sorry, nobody can deny this, but there was something that you said along the lines of like, you know, you're okay with your kids, your sons, your daughters having the black friends and bringing them home and all that stuff. This sounds horrible. I can't even believe I'm even saying that. But but once you want them to get married, you then that's when you have the issue when they want to marry somebody yeah. that's black. And it just sounds honestly disgusting to even say that because it's something that I feel like when I'm raising my kids, that's not going to even ever be an issue. But do we still live in a day and age where that is still an issue? Yes. So this is oh, why absolutely. we're going to talk about it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like another story of my mom, she was sitting at a table also again at the masjid. <laughs> and this lady was talking about her son and she was saying that she's looking for a wife for her son. And she was like, she has to be fair skin. And like just the fact that she said that, like the fact that that was a criteria for her, that she had to be fair skin, I think just shows like the problem that people have with blackness in general in the Muslim community. Uh, but I think another thing just in general, I saw this, I don't know if it was a tweet or somewhere somewhere on social media where people were basically said that everyone loves Bilal Ibn Rabah until he like he came today and asked any of like non-black Muslim parents for their daughter they would say no yeah so everyone loves to talk about it in the abstract like oh Bilal Ibn Rabah like the adhan you know like everybody likes to talk like everybody kind of likes to talk about it in terms of like oh we love him and we respect him But that respect always ends, I think, once it comes to marriage. Like a lot of my friends or a lot of people that I was friends with in the past said things to me that about their parents 
that now when I think of, I'm like, wow, that was really racist. A lot of them, like their parents were, you know, nice to me, never like they, but they always looked at me as like the, the, the different black girl. They, whenever they sp- spoke to me and like some of the things they said, it wasn't that they respected me because I was a human being. They respected me because I'm a black person that was different from the others. And to me, I'm like, if you're respecting me because you think that I'm different than other black people, then I kind of just don't want your respect at all. It because the purpose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I never really was critical in thinking about like, oh, like what would I want? And like from a, like, and if I like, you know, was to get married, like what, what are the things that are important to me um, when it comes to race? But I think like the older I've gotten, I think that people don't understand how much black, like black Muslim women have to think about when they're picking a spouse. For example, like, am I going to come home and like talk about my experience at work of something that was said that was racist? And my husband's like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Like, do you, you know, you go out in the outside world and you face that. Is that something you want to face at home? Also, it goes beyond the spouse. It goes beyond like your husband. Like, are my kids going to be treated differently because they're half black? And so it's interesting because I remember when I started thinking about those things, I thought it was just me thinking it. But anytime I talk to any of my friends that are black Muslims, it's kind of like we have the same conversations where they're like, yeah, I don't want him to, you know, get mad at me one day. I mean, the N word. That's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow. So even to think about that, to be honest, because that's something obviously doesn't yeah. cross our minds yeah. when we're getting married, you know? Yeah. And so I think that there's just a lot of considerations that people don't think of, but also I've just heard way too many like bad stories of people's experience with, you know, talking to someone that wasn't black. And like, like one of my friends mentioned how like the guy told her at some point, like, oh, like my mom's okay with, she, she kind of got over the fact that you're black. And so just things like that, where I'm like, that, like, how is that supposed to make her feel like, oh, yay, I'm glad she doesn't hate me anymore. You make somebody feel less than a human. It just, it's just like, how do you call yourself a Muslim? But then you also spew this kind of hate. You know what I mean? That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that what it ends up doing is like it. And I, I think that as Muslims in a, a part of a group that are supposed to be accepting of everyone, no matter, you know, who they are, what their backgrounds are. When you do things like that, what you're doing is contributing to the problem. You're contributing to the stereotypes about black people because you're teaching your kids that by you saying those things, but also you're not really helping black communities either because you're also teaching them. And like, for me, obviously I'm older now. So like people can say things like that to me, doesn't affect me as much, but I think of the younger generation, like I think of younger me, like hearing things like that and how it makes people hate themselves. And obviously I'm grateful that I've gotten to a point where at a point in my life where those things don't really affect me as much, but not everyone that's my age is at that point, right? There are people that are older than me that are still not at that point. And so I think that it's important to realize the impact of the things you say, even though like, you know, people say things like, oh, you know, you shouldn't marry a black person because your experiences are so different. But I'm like, a lot of the, a lot of immigrant parents don't realize that their children are born and raised in America. So their kids are different than them, right? Like so true. they have completely different experiences than their parents do. And so in the parents' mind, they're like, oh no, you, know, you, you guys are so different. But I'm like, do you really know your children? Like our cultures are different from our parents oh nowadays. God, they, I think it goes back to us being very well-versed within our own religion and our own faith so that we can confidently debunk what our parents have to say. So we can sit yeah. there with our parents and let them know like, hey, what you said, that's wrong. Hey, I'm going to marry this girl regardless of what color she is. And that's not something that even crossed my mind. Like it shouldn't cross your mind. Just know that she's a good girl or, she's, or he's a good guy. Well, I do think colorism, no matter or if you're Arab or whatever, it does exist in our community. Because, I mean, someone will get engaged and what is the first thing you hear? Oh, it's like 
is she tan? Like, oh, like, is she white? And those are the first questions, especially when you have a baby. Oh, like she came out white. Like, oh, she came out fair skinned. That those are, yeah. those are the comments that you hear as kids growing up. I remember I'm one of the tanners out of my cousins and to kind of internalize it because you hear those comments growing up. So it's instilled in our minds when we're young that like, hey, like white is good and the lightest, the sparer skin you are, the better. But I think our generation is kind of, learning like hey it really doesn't matter what color skin you are it i just really gonna ma- disagree with you yeah <laughs> you, you, i, I no, should have I told mean, you like, this we had a conversation I mean, like, it's really about what's inside their person maybe me and you zayna think this way like what may, how how do you feel about that like what zayna just said because you said there are still people who even in our generation still yeah. think that way and it's, and really it's so bad. disappointing to hear that yeah yeah i think that I obviously was, I I feel like just the more that I've experienced life, the more that my hope has like gone down in the younger generation. Um, Because I think that a lot of the younger kids go through a phase where they're like, oh, I'm not like my parents. And then as they get older, they become their parents in different ways. But what I'm also seeing very common in the teenage years and like young adults is like the obsession with the N word. I don't understand it. I just feel like we are at a point now where people should know that you just shouldn't use the N-word. There are two conversations when it comes to like the use of the N-word. Like I think there's like an in-group conversation and an out-of-group conversation. I don't think, and like, you know, people always want to say like, well, why do black people, black people use the word and why can't we use it? And I just don't think that the answer to whether black people use or don't use the word dictates whether other people can use it. Absolutely. And I just think that at the end of the day, the word was used towards black people and black people have over time kind of reclaimed the word and tried to, and like use it as like, you know, term of endearment. And like I said, I, I like personally tried to make a, a, a conscious effort not to use the word for my own personal reasons, but I don't think that I would never tell another black person like, oh, don't use the word. Um, like someone that's not like directly related to me, like my family, of course, I can tell them whatever I want. But like, I would not tell other people how to deal with how to to express themselves. And so I don't think that and, and the, the arguments that I always hear are kind of like, oh, well, like black people use it. So why can't we use it? Or like, we're called an N word. So why can't we use the word? And I just when you learn the history of the word, I don't understand why there's like a, a need to say, I always tell people, I'm like, I promise you, your life will be completely fun if you don't use it. You're still going to have friends. You're still going to be, you're not going to lose cool points. And if you do, maybe like, you don't want to be friends with those people anyway. And I just don't understand the obsession of it. And I think that a lot of the younger generation, I hear it a lot of, out of more than my generation. But then also I think another thing is it's, it's a big conversation about cultural appreciation versus appropriation. I don't think that you can just like wear blackness when it suits you. And then it's not a costume, right? It's not like I put it on, I'm going to rap to your music and use the N word. And then I'm going to go out and I'm going to pretend like black issues don't exist. I'm like the same energy that you're channeling into using the N word, channel that into talking about black issues within your community and outside of your community. Right. And I snap my fingers. So that's that. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's so true. That's so true. I just, I, it's not a costume. I think that's, what's really frustrating to me, especially as I've gone older. And I also, as I've seen, what it means to be a non-Black ally for the Black community. I'm like, you can appreciate a person's culture without appropriating. And if you're wearing it like a costume, you're appropriating. You can't in one breath use the N-word, but then another breath, like feed into the stereotypes about Black people by saying things that are problematic. Like you can't do that. And so I think that's why like, I don't, I, you know, I try to be positive and like be hopeful, but I just think that the more I experience and the more I hear and see, and like my brother is in high school and just like sometimes, you know, just hearing 
the stories and things that happen like in like the Muslim kids like his age and the things that they say and like social media I see a lot of them on social media that I'm like kind of problematic I don't really know why you thought that was okay to post or to say and that's why I think when I see those things I see a lot of like the appropriation and not appreciation of black culture you are right because I do still see that the appropriation amongst like high school kids the way they yeah yeah, their captions and what they say and everything like that it is wrong like a a non-black person shouldn't say well I could use it because I see you guys using it like that's my favorite singer said it in a song yeah but it's like no there's no reason I I, honestly I'm like I find absolutely zero reasons why a non-black person should be able to use that n-word I don't see the the need for it or why they're so adamant about it but i also seen like on social media there's this whole chart it says like if you're a non-black person and you're thinking about using the n-word here are the instances you can use it in. and it kept leading to the answer is no you cannot use it ever like yeah. it, it was like something along those lines and I'm no like, why is there even a chart it. for this like it should already be known i understand we grow up with rap music hip-hop music and it's used but it's like look at who is using it yeah it's it's yeah. it's not you you're 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 not black and you shouldn't be using it and if black people want to use it again it's just like you said it's their own form of reclaiming it their own form of expression their own form of healing it's it's between them and the word and it has nothing to do with us we should be completely out of this conversation and we shouldn't be using this in our conversations Absolutely. with anyone yeah or instagram captions i don't care how harmless you think it is just because you're not saying it you're typing it it's the same thing i'm sorry yeah absolutely. you know what i mean yeah. i'm just over it. and then that brings us also to like you that you shared an interesting point and i think i was guilty of this and i didn't know that it was it was until you explained it to me aisha that it made sense when we compare our struggles because oftentimes we do see this where we compare ferguson to palestine and what's going on I understand the similarities, but I think there is also a time and place when we can compare our struggles. And that's something Aisha, you mentioned. If you want to talk about that from your point of view and what you mean by that, because I, I completely agree with you. And obviously, like like what I'm saying right now and everything I've said so far is my experience. And I'm not speaking for the black community other than when I say for, I would say a majority of the black community don't use the N-word. Yeah. But other than that, I'm not speaking for like the broader black community. But I just personally, it really irritates me when I'm discussing something or an experience that I've had or something that has impacted me or upset me in terms of anti-blackness. And people kind of are like, oh, I completely understand what you're saying because, and then here's my story being a Muslim. Because I'm like, when you're saying that, first of all, when I'm talking as a black Muslim, I'm also talking as a Muslim, right? So like when you're like, oh, I know what you mean, because like when 9-11 happened, this happened to me. And I'm like, yeah, I know I was Muslim back then too. <laughs> and I think that it's it just, what ends up happening is you start minimizing and not listening to people's stories because every time they say, like they say two sentences and then you say 10, and then you've never actually given them the space, the time, or given yourself the ability or the um, capacity to listen to what they're saying and to actually learn from their experience. And I always say this, and this is like something that I mentioned, I think, to Dunya earlier, like my roommate, Sama, like she is literally like my best friend. I love, love her. And she literally, I love her. Is that your cousin? It's my cousin, Oh, so yeah. it's your cousin. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, she is the perfect person when it comes to listening and relating to without minimizing your experience. So if I come home and I'm like, oh my gosh, Sama, this happened at school today, or this happened when I went to the masjid, she will listen. Like we will talk through whatever happened. And if at that point, like we're done talking about it and she's like, oh, that kind of reminds me of, it's always like a a subsequent conversation that relates to what I said, but without minimizing what I said. And I think that that's the way you have these challenging conversations about, about struggles. Because at the end of the day, the issues that oppress the black community and, or not the issues, that what oppresses the black community, what oppresses 
Palestinian communities, what oppresses, just like every community in this or every group of people that are oppressed, Muslim community, it's rooted in the same, I think it's rooted in the same evil. So I do think that there's a space to have conversations where we're talking about all of that because they're all related. They're not like in different boxes, but at the same time, there's a time and a place for it. And there's a way of having those conversations that without minimizing others' experiences. And if you aren't listening to what people are saying, then you won't even be able to understand that relationship because you're so and I think that just goes back to how we have conversations in general as humans. We tend to like, as we're listening to people talk, we're kind of just thinking about what we're going to say instead of actually listening to what people are, what the person is saying. And you're losing out on experience because like as a, as a black Muslim woman, I'm never going to understand the experience of a Palestinian Muslim woman. I'm never going to understand the experience of a Desi Muslim, you know? And so there are issues that are unique to the Palestinian Muslim community that I will never under, I will never fully understand because they're not my experience. The only way I'll actually, you know, get a glimpse of what that reality is like is by listening, actually listening, not passively listening, right? Like listening to the stories of those of those communities and trying to, you know, ask questions or whatever it is in whatever way is appropriate to kind of understand that experience. And so I think that the only way that you can understand other people is by listening and not comparing struggles because then you end up passively listening and just thinking of what you're going to say next, which I don't think benefit it like defeats the purpose of the conversation at that point it does you you should really hear out somebody i know sometimes the intent isn't bad when somebody's trying to compare struggles because i think they want to explain to you and show you like hey i totally understand where you're coming from because my people are facing this but right now when you're talking you just took away moments of them talking and continuing to share their struggles with you instead of like us listening we do tend to like try to lend a helping hand but we do it in a wrong way by just basically taking back the mic and talking about our struggles struggles while trying to relate to your struggles but it's like we didn't even get the full picture of your struggle because we cut you off and saying like you know what I mean so that's something that I think I want to also just be better at because I think we 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 have good intentions with it but at the same time here's Aisha telling us this is how it makes her feel when this does happen to her it's it's not a good feeling definitely something I feel like I have to work on as well because you want to relate to the person you're talking to so you want to offer stories that are somewhat similar but in reality they are absolutely like like I said night and day and and you instead of just like like you said like let me listen to your story let me ask you questions about what happened let me get to know what happened in your certain situation then I can say well you know correct me if I'm wrong but like I can listen to you I can ask questions I can be fully emerged in that conversation and then after we're done with that conversation then I can bring up like hey you know like I actually went through something somewhat similar yeah I think I think it's I think it's really just like allowing people to you know, talk through whatever their experience is without kind of talking over them. Um, but I don't think that, you know, I'm not saying that, oh, when I'm speaking of X issue, you can't speak of your issue at all. I'm not saying that at all. I just think that there's a time and a place and a way where you're allowing people to share their experience without minimizing it. You also say, Aisha, that Mark Lamont Hill is somebody who does this very yes. well. He talks a lot about, you know, like the how he talks a lot about how the two issues are related without taking away from either. Um, like the Palestinian struggle and the African-American and the oppression of black people. He talks about how they're both related, but with giving each, you know, their time and their space to have a conversation about. We want to thank you, Aisha, for this much needed conversation. It's very eye-opening. Because it is eye-opening because it's like just a different way of looking at things, especially this last point of, or, you know, topic that we talked about is not minimizing other people's struggles. I mean, I think we need to learn how to empathize more with one another. I think we're always just like beating each other to the mic and trying to explain what we're going through and everything like that. But it's like, we're all one ummah. We're all together in this. We should all be able to just like help one another, highlight one another's struggles without taking from the other person. 
person's, you know, Absolutely. pain. Or and I'm guilty of it doing it too. I think we, I think we all are. I think it's something that we can all, you know, strive to be better at. So yeah, we're all, we're, you know, we, we're all growing and learning. The world is changing every single day. You know what I mean? It, and just because the world is changing every day doesn't mean like our, the solution to all these issues is getting further and further away. I think it's actually getting closer and closer, but it's just like, I think we need to have these open and honest and sometimes uncomfortable conversations. And it's only uncomfortable when somebody needs to be told off more often than not like, hey, what you're saying is wrong. Stop saying this. But you know what I mean? Like we don't have to attack one another in the learning process. I think that's what it is. I think we are just so ready to attack and cancel one another that it's it, we don't realize like if you want to find the solution, it's just having a healthy conversation first is what works really. And this was a very eye-opening and healthy conversation. And Aisha, mashallah, you're very, very brilliant. And what last piece of advice do you want to leave for everybody? For obviously for anyone listening, I think that like one thing that I would ask everyone to do is just look at your circle of friends, people that you communicate with, the people that you, you know, respect, learn from, and just make sure that you are not in a community that looks exactly like you, because I think that you miss out on so many life experiences. So just challenge yourself to step outside of your comfort zone, um, talk to other people that don't look like you and, you know, maybe you'll learn a thing or two. If you want to seek this knowledge and you want to benefit yourself, stop waiting for other people to join you. Just go ahead and do it yourself and somebody then they'll slowly start joining you. But I think that's one step that we can change during Ramadan. So thank you so much, Aisha. Walla, you're amazing. Can't wait to see what else you have in store. And inshallah, you graduate soon. It's honestly amazing to have brilliant women in our community, in our Muslim community. So it's it's beautiful. So we're all here for one another. Thank you guys for for allowing me to have this conversation with you guys. We want to share everybody else's stories, and that's what makes our community stronger and where we can allow our circle to grow bigger. I don't believe in small circles. There's no such thing as that. So let's continue to expand our knowledge and just, like, have more of a really stronger sisterhood. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. I love how Aisha pointed out that just because you come from the same part of the world or your skin color is the same doesn't mean your experiences are always going to be the same. You can't just blanket uh, a stereotype or or uh, a way of belief on everybody just because of how they look or where they come from. Yeah, because everybody does have a different experience. And like you you and I have said this before, Zaina, like we come from literally the same village in Palestine, but we still have different experiences, different upbringings and whatnot. So I, it shows more than ever that we have to take count um, everybody's story and really listen and hear everybody out. And I think it's really important for us to start listening more and talking less. I think oftentimes we want to just be there for somebody else that's going through something for another community that feels like they're being left out. We want to be there for them, but I think we do a disservice when we're the ones talking on behalf of them more often than listening to them. Yeah, and I think a lot of things, a lot of times what I do is I want to relate to that person. So I'll bring up an incident that I went through that is so uncomparable but just because I want to add something sometimes it's you okay to just pain exactly and it's okay to just sit there and nod and really listen without having to add your own personal story to like whatever they're going through that's a good point because sometimes I feel like I'm not doing enough if all I'm doing is just listening but trust me yeah. like put yourself in your own shoes or in their shoes wouldn't you want when you're trying to explain a situation that you're going through you just sometimes just want somebody to listen to you and not have to tell you how to feel or to, or for them to tell you how they feel like it's like no I'm 
talking about myself right now. And I should literally, she, she didn't mean it in a condescending way at all. I'm just glad she brought this up because I've never heard this. And that's, that's why I keep saying like, it's really important to listen to everybody's story. Because again, like we've listened to so many anti-blackness like in our society and outside of our society. But this is the first time I'm hearing it from somebody who, again, is from the black community who's telling me like, I want people to listen to us more than you telling me, oh, I feel you, Aisha. No, like she doesn't we want don't. that. Yeah, we don't. You know? And then I think it's so important that we have these conversations and I really applaud her for speaking out and educating so many people on what they can do to help put an end to the anti-blackness in our community. And, you know, honestly, I really just hope that we can continue to go towards that direction of, you know, more unity and more collaboration and, you know, valuing everybody from every part of the world within our community. You know, when you're Muslim, it doesn't mean that you should be only somebody who is fair skinned and speaks Arabic and from a certain part of the world. Like Muslim is more so a faith. So I think we need to just be more welcoming from you know, towards everybody. Oh, that's, absolutely. that's the whole purpose of this. Especially in Ramadan, you know, we might not be in our masajid and sometimes our masajid can be clicky, but, you know, we're working from our homes, we're praying from our homes. Let's still find ways to just be there for one another, inshallah. Absolutely. I really hope you guys are enjoying these episodes, enjoying these conversations. Next week, we're going to have Yusra Kandil and we're going to talk all things related to dua and just the power of prayer and the power of istikada. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Have a nice Ramadan. Bye. Thank you.